G'day, welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life, and those in life chat music, and more. I'm John Murch, joining you for possibly one of the last times in the study here in Adelaide, South Australia, moving into dedicated studios through this year of 2021. But also, welcome to Season 3. This is the first episode of the season, and we'll be heading to Nashville of the United States of America just a moment for our two guests for today. But just to let you know, coming up next, we'll be hearing from High Five's Nathan Foley, Mr. American Pie, Don McLean. We'll hear from Alex Lalo. If you haven't checked out his music, feel free to do that as soon as you get a chance. And also, Kumang will be with us as well. And then we'll be hearing from Sia, Sia Furler, as she was known from the conversations I hope to share with you very soon during this season. But first, to our feature guest this week, and a big welcome back to Tammy with all the details. Royal South. Their debut single hit number one in the UK on the iTunes Country Music Chart, and more recently, producer Paul Worley, who has worked with the likes of Lady Antebellum, The Chicks, and more, has been crafting music with them. As independent artists, they have a loyal base of fans, many who've joined their Patreon page for the the behind-the-scenes on the music and to play tipsy trivia with them. Their latest tune is You Weren't Meant For Me, and soon they will have a single out called Perfect On Paper. Sarah Beth and Glenn join John from Nashville. Welcome to Radio Notes. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Glenn. You moved to the US in 2001 from England. Yeah, it'll be 20 years in 2021. It's been amazing. Um, Music here in Nashville has been really, really good to me. Uh, I've had some wonderful gigs. I've I've toured all over the place. It's It's been pretty amazing. I've been very, very lucky. And I was, shockingly, I was lucky as soon as I stepped off the plane. You know, the the very first thing that ever started happening for me was pretty awesome. Looking back, I can't believe how lucky I was, really. Glenn, just give us a bit of a picture there. Where were you in your life at 2001? Was there a catalyst for you to say, look, I've just had like a, you know, a four-year relationship or whatever was going on at the time. I just need to move on. I, I need to have some Glenn time. I don't know if you're a psychic or something. That's, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> but I was pretty much right there. Um, on top of that, though, my father always had a country music band. So I was always in country bands. And then when I started my own band, I was always getting a little bit of a, a kickback from the country music scene, the fraternity, because I was playing my own songs uh, with some cover songs. But people, you know, they, they like to hear what they know. So I was getting a little bit of that. We had CMT in Europe at that point, and I was hoping to be on the vanguard of making country music more popular in Europe and making it, well, frankly, more legitimate because, um, you know, as soon as you used to say country music in England, people would tease you with, you know, slap my thigh and stuff like that, you know. Mm -hmm. You're speaking to Australia. We have a guy called Keith Urban, so he would have gone through that around the same time that you were. Keith Urban, to me, um, obviously, when I moved here, I, I loved his, his first band, The Ranch. That album was unbelievably great. And he was a beacon of hope for me because it was somebody who spoke similarly to me from a whole different country. You didn't, you know, grow up in the American South, uh, was really successful in country music. So he was a real beacon of hope for me. But the reason 
I moved away from England was because drum machines and backing tracks infiltrated our scene to the point where if you didn't go out with backing tracks, you couldn't be competitive with your price. And I just did not want to do that. Like I, I don't mind playing as a solo or a duo, but I don't like playing to backing tracks. I'm not trying to knock anybody who does do that. To me, when I'm doing that, I feel almost like I'm at karaoke or something. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't feel um, real. I'd rather hear a guy with just his acoustic guitar singing than I would a guy singing over a huge backing track. So that happened too. And then I split up with my girlfriend of four years and I was speaking to um, my drummer in my band went on to some really cool things and there's like a crossover period like right now he plays for Robbie Williams and studio he, he does Ed Sheeran sessions and stuff he, um, he's a fabulous drummer and a young guy like me at the time <laughs> and um, I spoke to his father and his father was the one that really convinced me that Either I needed to get off the country music scene in England and go into rock and pop like his son had done, mm. or I needed to go to Nashville. And he thought I should go to Nashville. That's kind of when I made the decision and I just started selling everything I owned. And what I couldn't sell, after 20 years, there's still a bunch of my stuff <laughs> in two of my friends' garages. I think it's said garages. You did. Um, but <laughs> two of their garages. Uh, Sheds. Back in England. Shed, so okay. <laughs> even after 20 years my stuff's still there the stuff that I couldn't sell you know and at that point I had I'd already been to Nashville and I'd already made some friends through songwriting and I'd already recorded an album in Nashville so I, I knew some people and I just showed up and one co-writer was like why don't you crash on my couch and I crashed on his couch for about six months and the rest I guess is, is history after that things started going really great. Sarah Beth for you you've moved from Garland Texas yeah, so fun fact, Garland, Texas is also the hometown of Leanne Rhymes. That was a really big thing growing up. She was a couple of years older and went to the elementary school down the street. I thought, well, if she can do it. She's from the same town. She lives right down the street. If she can do it, I can do it. And that was me in elementary school. I always wanted to do music and it was something that I was already always really passionate about. But then I feel like at some point in time, although I sang and I did everything musical growing up, at some point in time, you kind of let reality hit you in the face and you think, well, that seems like an unattainable dream. How in the world am I going to make it in music? Because part of you also forgets that making it in music doesn't mean that you are the biggest star on the planet. You don't have to be Carrie Underwood to be successful and to have a successful music career. You know, you can do it independently and it can be just fine. And so I kind of just decided that maybe it wasn't the most realistic career choice. And so I went to Baylor University. I got an entrepreneurship degree. Actually works great in music because whenever you're an independent musician, it is your own business. I graduated and I was pretty clueless. I honestly didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think that a lot of people find themselves in that place. You graduate and you've just spent all this money in college to get this amazing education. And you get out and you have no idea what you want to do great, you've got a degree, but you're clueless. <laughs> so I actually went and taught in the Dominican Republic for three months. I taught music in the Dominican Republic. And that for me was something, I was supposed to be a counselor for, a, it was a summer camp. I was supposed to be a camp counselor, but because I'm fluent in Spanish and one of the music teachers didn't show up, I ended up being the music teacher. And it was things like that where music just kept being put in front of me in the most random ways. 
I had a great summer and I obviously had a lot of time to think being away from everybody and everything that I knew for that summer. And when I got back, I went to a conference with my parents. It was all business related. I actually had just told my mom that I wanted to record some original songs and I had never written a song at this point. And so I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know how this works, but I really want to look into what it would take to do that. I think it's something that I've always wanted to do and always said it might not be realistic, but if I don't try now, I don't want to look back and regret mm. not taking the chance. And so I had just told my mom that and at this conference and we were walking to the lobby and we got to the lobby and my mom was like, well, it's funny that you just told me this. You should go talk to the lady that's over there. Her name is Kay. I'm big fans she- of Kay. Can we get back to can we get back to Kay in that story because that's obviously going to lead us very quickly into Nashville I feel. Go back to when Sarah Beth here was 18 months old because I still can't figure out a piece of the pie. Big fan of having the whole picture. Presley, this is your father Sarah Beth said at 18 months of old Frothy the Nomad. Now I want to know why a nomad is having beers. Clearly I don't understand the accent. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Yeah, Frosty the Snowman. But that's just how, at that point in my life, that was my speech. So that, <laughs> it was Frothy the Snowman. Yeah, that was it. To you, Glenn, the other thing that I've noted down about you is, is that you've performed on not just Jay Leno, but you've also performed on the David Letterman show. I did, I did, did them both a few times, actually. Leno had a huge studio in L.A., backstage the green room and the dressing rooms were gigantic and it was all really comfortable and wonderful and before you went on the tv jay leno would come backstage and he would shake everybody's hand and thank everybody for coming but when you would play letterman it's in the middle of new york city it's practically no space at all backstage like a tiny little green room and like a, a coat closet for a changing room and David Letterman, obviously everybody, when you play those shows, everybody just wants to shake the hand of Letterman or, you know, you just want to shake the hand and say you did it, you know. He was kind of prickly and uh, and unapproachable the whole time. I did Letterman with, I think it was Joe Nichols, the time I did it with Joe Nichols. One of the band members went over to shake his hand. It was on camera, it was on the TV, and, and he just blanked him like, blanked him didn't like just left the guy hanging there with his with his hand out on the table it was it was it was pretty hilarious to me I I just we all found it funny as a band we found it funny that that happened to the dude on national television you know because we're cruel (laughs) particularly Glenn you think he's a bit old you've been catching up with the new tv series we don't really watch a lot of tv but we did recently watch his new show because Sarah Beth really wanted to watch the Kim Kardashian interview I've spent several years now on the road with Sarah Beth and a third person who was either Vicky Vaughan or Kristen uh, Ball, who, so it's always me and two girls, or at least it has been for many years. And the girls just want to talk about the Kardashians all the time. And it's just, it just drives me crazy. If it's not the Kardashians, it's Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's just the worst. You just can't shake it off, can you? No. So when Sarah Beth wanted me to watch David Letterman interviewing Kim Kardashian, I was reluctant, but, you know, I thought I'd do it for Sarah Beth. And uh, it was a pretty decent interview. She came across as quite smart. Yeah. And, uh, and I liked it very much. And um, obviously, Letterman came across as real friendly and awesome. Mm-hmm. Obviously. Paul Schaefner was friendly, though, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yes. 
I would have been upset if yeah. that was a negative, but I thought I'd best ask. Sarah Beth, how many times have you watched the Gilmore Girls? Um, I've watched it. Glenn actually had to cut me off because he gets annoyed by all their voices. Oh, come I on. I know. We're, we're talking 24-7. Because obviously we're home, and I, I think that Glenn sometimes thinks that I just only watch TV all day long. But when I'm sitting at the computer or, like, doing anything – I'll have it on in the background. So, you know, it's just what I do. But I've watched it probably all the way through four times. And that's since it's been on Netflix. I also have all the DVDs. How much do the Gilmore Girls influence your songwriting style or your your lyrical output? I think that the writing in that show is incredibly witty and clever, but... I don't think I can say that the Gilmore Girls have really inspired any songs. Right now it's the Gilmore Girls, but it could be another show. Like like Sarah Beth watched all of Friends through twice, you know. Yeah, just like that, and The that, Office. And The Office, and it could be uh, or Frasier. I mean, she just she gets hooked on a show and she doesn't switch it up. It will be like all the seasons back to front a couple of times and, uh, you know, just drives me crazy. Did Pique my interest when you said you were watching Doctor Who. Well, I I have a weird thing with Doctor Who where I really want to love it. Is that because the British side of you? Exactly, because there, there's nothing, television-wise, there's nothing more British than Doctor Who. And I do like it. I just want to love it. So every now and again, I'll really try to love it. But it, I don't know. It, it's like the same story every every episode with, with different funny-looking aliens, I guess. I don't know. I could never really get too deep into it. But I do occasionally try. And I tried again recently with the new woman doctor. And I thought she was pretty good. But, again, the stories weren't really doing it for me. Okay. So you don't have a favourite – neither of you have a favourite doctor by any chance because it's just a casual watch. For me, it's Tom Baker because of the scarves. I liked – Matt Smith. Yeah, Matt Smith was great. I liked Matt Smith quite a bit. And I we've actually been to the Doctor Who Museum. Well, I guess it's not there anymore in Cardiff. Yeah, that was awesome, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really cool. The Doctor Who Museum was amazing. You go in uh, to... Like, it was, by the way, it was like us and a bunch of school-aged children. Like, yeah. I think we were the only people that came without a child under the age of 10. <laughs> But you, you go into the where the ticket counter is and there was a bunch of, you know, Daleks and costumes to keep you entertained. And you, you pay your ticket, they start you on the tour and you go into this very boring looking room and this person comes and starts having a chat about stuff and you sit there and you're thinking, this is really, really boring. And there's this like crack on the wall that kind of catches your attention and you think, that's a weird looking crack on the wall. But long story short, they're talking and then the crack starts lighting up and the wall starts opening up. And then behind the wall was just like an amazing, an amazing experience, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really it, great. It was awesome, you know, just walking around different TARDISes and planetscapes and stuff and just amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, and then the, of course they've got like all the different like character costumes and stuff from the show. So there's, yeah. a, there's a room where it's like it's, you know, starts from the earlier days up to the present, which was really cool. Yeah. And like, so, so the last room is gigantic and it's pretty much, it's like a museum really. Yeah. And that was just fascinating, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Well, it was a really great experience. So even though I'm not overly a huge fan of Doctor Who, I'm a massive fan of, well, I was a massive fan because it's gone now, but the Doctor Who Museum was incredible. 
being classically trained. So in a way, you had to unlearn music that you learnt in high school to then become a singer-songwriter. Is that the case? All of the techniques, like the breathing, the support, all of that stuff is important regardless of what style you're using. So that you obviously keep all of that with you. But when I moved to Nashville, I, I'll never forget, it was such a fight in the studio because I started taking voice lessons when I was in seventh grade. So I would have been 12 years old and I started taking then, and then I took voice lessons all the way through college. So it was a decade of classical voice lessons. And so when I went in, it just comes naturally. I sang in choirs, I sang in chamber groups. And so you, you sing the way that I would cut things off. It was like, I was singing with a metronome. Um, so I was just always like very, it was always very crisp. And then even the way that I would shape my vowels was very like Christmas choir mm-hmm. sounding, you know, like you, it's just that classical sound. And first six songs that I ever recorded, I went in and re, I took voice lessons here in Nashville and I actually went in and my voice teacher came into the studio with me and we redid the vocals. I guess it was like 18 months after I'd first recorded the songs. So yeah, it was, it was definitely an experience, but it's the more that you do it and the more that you're singing something that's in obviously in commercial country music, that's a lot more normal now than trying to sing something classically. I've got the word clarinet in my head and I've got it attached, I think, to Glenn. Yeah. Wow, you've done your homework. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, welcome to Radio as a Notes. Child, uh, I started playing. <laughs> <laughs> as a child, I started playing the guitar and the mandolin when I was five. And then when I was nine, I started playing the clarinet and my parents sent me to an after-school program that I would go to every Tuesday night where I would learn classical clarinet and guitar. And in England, there are eight classical grades. When I was 13, I passed my final grade, grade eight, on the clarinet. I hated, I hated playing the clarinet. And I hated playing classical music, but my parents kind of forced me. And so, like, when I was practising, I would have horrible, like, temper tantrums as a child, you know, because these pieces would be so hard and I'd get so frustrated and the music stand would fly one way and my clarinet would fly the other you know and I'd just go crazy and then I'd pick up the clarinet again and eventually get it right. When I got the grade eight certificate delivered my mum and dad were so happy about it and I was happy too because I'd worked really really hard and I was grinning and I and I had the certificate in my hand and I said does this mean I can quit now? And my mum was like, what do you mean quit? I said, I don't want to play the clarinet. I never wanted to play the clarinet. There's no more grace for me to do. Can I stop? And she's like, well, I think you'll find that you probably want to continue playing. Uh, I'll be like, I think I'll find I don't. And the clarinet went up into the loft and it stayed there. I've never played the clarinet ever again. Begs the question, Sarah Beth, when was the last time you sang an aria? Oh, gosh. I mean, it would have been in college. After those voice lessons, we're done. (laughs) yeah but I think too like now I think there's more options but when I was in school if you wanted to do music you went and you did that's the type music that you sang you know if you wanted to do anything obviously in high school I was part of my pop group and so we obviously sang like pop music but you didn't really have that many options especially in school now maybe outside of school you could find some sort of club or something but everything was pretty much geared towards classical training yeah in England there was nothing there was nothing outside of classical music no no groups or anything to join as a child you could go to private guitar lessons like 
one-on-one -on -one with a guy who might teach you some rock music or something but I mean it was pretty much all classical music I'm glad that I learned classical music that has been invaluable to me you know knowing about music theory I just put that towards you know my songwriting and uh, and playing guitar in a country music style now let's talk about sport Sarah Beth and we yeah. were talking about Presley before and he's a basketball coach yes so how much was sport part of you growing up then? Because I've seen you, I think, swinging a baseball bat pretty killer. Yes. I wanted to be good at sports, but I, I'm not very good. And I also have a fear of getting injured. So I never was quite aggressive enough because I didn't want to get hurt. My dad coached high school basketball. He was the varsity basketball coach. And then my brother's one of those people like Glenn is with instruments. Glenn can pick up pretty much any instrument and he can make it sound good. My brother's one of those people with sports, you know, it, he never met a sport that he was bad at. And so I just, I was never very good. I played um, volleyball and basketball through middle school. But after that, I, I guess I did competitive cheerleading, um, which is incredibly difficult with all of like the tumbling and all of that stuff. So, I mean, that's, Glenn is like, Cheerleading's not athletic, but it is. I never said that. I just didn't believe that you ever did any of that tumbling stuff. But then Sarah Beth's mom showed me some videos for Christmas. For Actually, Christmas. she gave me some DVDs of, of Sarah Beth doing a bunch of incredible, like, gymnastic tumbling. Yeah. It's amazing. That was one of Glenn's Christmas presents. He got to see my cheerleading <laughs> tryout. Yeah, so. yeah. They get me the best presents. <laughs> Let's talk about your brother, though, in terms of he got to play for something called the Cardinals. Now, I don't know much about sport, but that sounds pretty impressive. And he got the chance to play for the Cardinals. I believe, Sarah Beth, this kick-started your drive to follow your dreams as well. Yeah, it did. Because I saw my brother going, you know, it's the same thing, sports or music. It's one of those things where, you know, growing up, you aspire, like everyone aspires to do something usually at some point in their life, whether it's to be an actor, to be a singer, a professional ball player. And so when my brother, my brother got drafted out of college to play baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals, um, which is a major league baseball team. When that happened, it was definitely when I decided, okay, that was kind of the final straw of like, I'm going to try this music thing. We'll see how it goes. I might, honestly, it might just be a project that I like pull out at Christmas parties and say, look, isn't this cool? I recorded some songs back a while ago. And then it ended up obviously being something that I fell in love with and I'm doing as my full-time career. Running out of lipstick, a little bit about this song. Sarah Beth and I wrote it with a friend of ours, Gwen Sebastian. Gwen's a wonderful artist herself. Uh, she's currently singing background vocals for... Miranda Lambert. We wrote that song and when um, in that second verse that the, obviously the reason why we use the name the Cardinals you know Cold Bud Light in a Cardinals game is because of Sarah Best's brother at the time was in the in the Cardinals organization. That's one of my favorite songs from Sarah Best's solo career. Her solo career has morphed into being Royal South obviously because when it was her solo career it was still me and Sarah Beth doing everything but now I, I guess I, I get my chubby face on the pictures now. <laughs> so Run Out Lipstick, it was on a Sarah Best EPs that I produced and it did really well for us. What you might not know is with um, that line in there, Cold Bud Light and a Cardinals game, I had smart idea, which turned into a bit of a nightmare. I love but this I thought, story. This is a great story. Tell us. <laughs> it went out to all 
the radio went out to radio in America, all the major radio stations. And obviously they're all in different cities and all the different cities have their own teams. So we went back in the studio and we tailored the song to the radio stations we were pitching it to. So if we were sending the song to radio stations in Dallas, it would be Cold Bud Light and a Cowboys game or a Rangers game yeah. or something, you know, and we would use all different team names in that slot to try and encourage the radio folks to play it in their area, you know, thinking that the local uh, population would be, oh, yeah, the Cowboys game. <laughs> it did do pretty well, didn't it? That song yeah. did really well for us. Yeah, and we actually filmed the music video here for that song. Yeah, Sarah Beth had just bought this house. Yeah, the furniture got here basically right before the, the day before we filmed the video. <laughs> so my furniture, because I had just made the like, you know, move from Texas and sold my house there. And so, yeah, the furniture showed up from Texas the day before the video shoot. It was a little stressful. And I should also say, if you were to do it in Australia, you wouldn't have to just change the footy team or the NRL for the northern states, but you also have to change the beer for every state as well. So you'd end up recording a lot of different versions. Even between our two football teams, there'd be two different beers. Sounds like a great way of marketing. Being an independent artist, what's some of those tips? What's some of that encouragement that you can give those up-and-coming bands that are thinking, look, I've got the songs, I've got the music, but I'm just not getting out there? There's so many different things where to start. I know for, I'll say this for Glenn. I know that Glenn was really shocked because he came from the world of working with major label artists where everything is done for you. It's basically like as the artist, you show up. Now I'm not saying that they're not working hard, but all of the groundwork is laid. They just give that to the artist, you know? And and obviously I was just a guitar player in the band, but I would show up to the venue in a million dollar tour bus. I rolled in the sound check and my guitar tech had set up all my equipment and changed my strings and done absolutely everything. The only thing I would do would be play the guitar. I was in a little bubble. I was, I was, I was in a little bubble until I met Sarah Beth and I realised how unbelievably hard it is to be an independent artist. I think the biggest thing that I can say for what I've experienced is that no one, the biggest thing, no one will work as hard for you as you will work for yourself. And for me, it's a full-time, it is a full-time job. You know, even if we're not out on the road, the majority of the things that happen in music are not the music itself. You know, it's still, you've got to do the whole business side. I would say that it's really important, first of all, to come up with whatever budget that you have. And then there's places where you can obviously save money. And then there's places where you should spend more money your imaging and all that stuff. That's the first thing that people see for you. So making sure that you invest in a nice logo, that you get a great photographer and it doesn't just look like you, now there's nothing wrong with posting a bunch of pictures that you took out in your backyard, but make sure that, you know, you- Yeah, but you've got to have the super professional- Yeah, because when you're presenting something to a person that doesn't know you, you're trying to get booked for a show, you're sending out a single, you're doing any of that stuff, the first thing before they ever meet you, talk to you, even read your email a lot of times is they see that the picture. I would say too that it's just really important. Don't ever say no to an opportunity and to build a fan base wherever you can. So if you can build that on social media, I think email lists are really important to connect with your fans. And sometimes what works for one person won't work for the next. So don't get discouraged if something doesn't work for you because what works for your the person you're watching on social media might not be the same thing that would work for you. 
Glenn, your father was a radio announcer. Can you talk to us about the difference back then when you were growing up, and it was a little while ago, in terms of how music has been accepted? Well, my dad, he was a, a radio presenter once a week on Essex Radio. I'm, I'm from Essex in England, uh, and he had a two-hour country music show. It was the only country music show mm-hmm. in Essex at the time. It was just something he was asked to do because there was so little country music. So I don't know if my dad would have really considered himself to be a radio presenter so much. He had somebody in there helping him with all the buttons and stuff, you know, and, and he would he would literally take his records from home and just play his favourite tunes on Essex Radio for a couple of hours. And back then, yeah, the, the perception of country music in England was really bad. It was all like, you know, yee-haw and it was a bit of a bit of a joke to people really. And so it was always really hard. But like I said, my dad had a country music band and I had a country music band and it it was always a real struggle to be accepted. You know, and that goes all through your life. When 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 you're when your whole life in England is consumed by country music, especially back then, and you tell somebody that you love country music, they would look at you like you're crazy. It was incredibly hard to get a girlfriend. <laughs> so there's that. Oh, some, something amusing about my dad was uh, the record labels used to send him all the vinyl and then eventually like all the CDs they would have that would be sent from Nashville to the record labels to, to promote to radio. There was no outlet for these CDs, but they would send them to my dad. And then Essex Radio used to look at these CDs and say, well, you can take those home, Steve, because... We're never going to play that stuff. Yeah. We're never going to play that music. So you can have it. So my dad would bring them home and it'd be bands like Alabama, Restless Heart, stuff like that, Ricky Skaggs. But my dad would refuse to play Alabama because that wasn't country enough. And if you listen to Alabama now, it sounds so country. It's incredible. You can imagine something sounding more country than yeah. Alabama tunes, you know. Not distant, but he had that opportunity to actually break and play for some of these bands, but his own censorship of what that genre meant to him and, and good on him for having that vision of what he thought the genre was meant that yeah. Alabama got missed out on uh, getting big in the UK. Yeah. Well, I, don't know. I don't know if my dad could have ever made them big. It was just a little local radio station, really. But uh, yeah, he would, he, he would play a lot of older stuff, Don Williams and Merle Haggard and stuff like that. That's what he really loved. And that's, honestly, now that I'm older, that's the stuff I truly love too. I really love old country music. I I also love Alabama. And Restless Heart actually became my favourite band for a long time because my dad would bring home their albums and just dump them off on me. And I would go up in my bedroom and I would listen to all this new country music at the time. And I got very heavily into um, Restless Heart and Steve Earle was a massive hero of mine. Ricky Skaggs. My dad would bring home those CDs and I'd take them up to my bedroom and slap my headphones on and just be up there for hours and hours. Sarah Beth, how you're introduced to Kay and how Kay then was the catalyst for where Royal South are today. Yeah, so we were in Pennsylvania and that was the convention that I was at with my parents. We are walking to the lobby of the hotel. My mom was like, you should go talk to Kay. And I was like, okay, why? (laughs) What is is Kay going to help me with? And um, I went over and talked to her and she was like, well, you've got to call my brother. You've got to call my brother. This, Yeah, like here's his number. And so Lone Star, so Dean Sands is in, in the band Lone Star. 
uh, for me, that was, you know, I grew up listening to their music. I had all of their CDs. You don't call those people. Like, that's unattainable. You know, you don't just end up with someone in one of your favorite band's phone numbers. Like, they've won massive awards and, like, been all over the world playing music. And they've won everything, you know? And so, and, you and know. Mace was number one all over the world. All over the world. It, it was even number one in the pop chart. Here. Yeah. So I was too chicken to call him, even though I had his phone number. And his sister kept texting me. She's like, hey, he's waiting for your phone call. He's waiting for your phone call. But that was like a little too much for me. So I found him on Facebook and I sent him a message on Facebook. And he responded and he said, hey, I'll give you a call. And I'll never forget, I was waiting in line at the bank to make a deposit. And he calls me. He's like, okay, cool. I've got some songs. And he's asking me, I'm so, I had no idea what I was doing. Totally clueless. I'd never been to Nashville at this point. I'd never written a song. I sang, I loved singing. I loved performing, but I was as green as green can be. And so he's asking me all these questions and he probably was thinking how in the world have I connected with this person? She is clueless. And I was, but I was standing there in line at the bank talking to him about stuff, but he started sending me songs that afternoon we recorded our first project together. He introduced me to Glenn and the rest is history. 2013, is that where the story started? That is where the story starts, yeah. Crazy, seven years ago. Sarah Beth was working with uh, Dean from Lone Star and they put on a showcase for labels and booking agents and you know industry people and they needed a band and I used to play for Lone Star. So Dean called me to play the guitar and then... Um, yeah, and, and you double booked yourself for a session that, that's right, I for the rehearsal. I had a you, recording session. With Gwen Sebastian. Yes. Yeah. So my first impression of Glenn was him pacing, frantically talking on the phone. I'm like, what's up with this dude? What's his problem? I had a recording session booked and I frantically had to find another, you know, a, a good guitar player to go and sub for me so that I could do Sarah Best thing instead. And it was all very last minute and I was just freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bridget Bardini. My brand new single, Aphrodite, is out now. I'm coming up on Radio Notes. How do you find the songwriting process between the Royal South, between between you guys? How, how easily do you find it? Do you leave it to Sarah Beth to do the songwriting? Do you then uh, use some of your own? Do you sit down over a cuppa? Yeah, I've been, I've been writing songs my whole life. I find it very, very easy to write songs. Uh, I find it very hard. So um, usually whatever room I'm in, I will write most of the song. The other people in the room will give ideas of where the story might go and some rhymes and I'll throw out a couple of lines. I, and I don't know if this is a good thing or not. Honestly, I'm a little, I guess I'm a little heavy handed because when, when I'm in a songwriting room, I'm always spitting out ideas and constantly making noise and creating stuff. And, uh, and, I, and I guess more than anything is uh, I'm guided by the other people in the room, really. What I need from somebody more than anything is, is an idea for a song, right? If you, if you can come to me with an idea for a song. What, like making babies? That, yeah, I can craft <laughs> that idea into a song for you. But coming up with a cool idea, that's the hard part for me. That's really what I need from people. And Sarah Beth and I have been writing for a long time. And when I first started writing with Sarah Beth, she had written very few songs. Like, like maybe five. Sarah Beth, I wanted to ask you because you have been quoted as saying that you find songwriting intimidating, but I think that was in reference to being in a, like a songwriting room situation. How do you find it songwriting with Glenn? How do you find that process? It's not as intimidating as it used to be, but I think that 
Songwriting for me, especially if you haven't been doing it very much, which can be both when you first start and then if you've taken a break from it. So say you haven't written in six months and you're jumping back in. It's getting out of your own head because there's so many times where I've thought of an idea, I thought of a, a line or a rhyme or phrase, part of a verse, and I don't say it because I'm like, people are, they're going to think that's stupid. So I keep my mouth shut. Then somebody else says something that's basically the same thing and everyone loves it. So you, sometimes you have to get out of your own, your own way. I play a couple songs on guitar, but I don't play guitar. And so like, Glenn sometimes can get very into his where he's going in his own thought process and so he can get really quiet and then I don't know what to do like should I be coming up with ideas or is he really on to something I don't want to mess up his flow but Glenn has definitely been very helpful for me because I'm less intimidated to just say what I think. Yeah when you're songwriting you have to spit out a whole bunch of really stupid things embarrassing things sometimes just like you say everybody everybody writes songs does that but when you start spitting out really bad stuff that you're never going to use that can lead to something really cool you know there can be like a little seed of, of something awesome in there yeah you um, never know what's going to inspire yeah. somebody else yeah since meeting Sarah Beth every song I've written I've written with Sarah Beth in the room it might be three people Every song I've written since meeting Sarah Beth has been with Sarah Beth. The Sarah Beth Project and now Royal South has completely become my whole life. And uh, so I don't, I literally don't write for anybody else anymore. I love writing with Sarah Beth. It's great. When I met Sarah Beth, I just really believed in her. I was in between, well, I wasn't, I was in between a regular gig. I was playing for a couple of people. I was playing for uh, Gwen Sebastian and Radney Foster. Radney Foster's a wonderful Texas artist, but neither of those acts really had enough gigs for me to, you know, completely commit to them. But then I met Sarah Beth and I was absolutely blown away by her, by her voice and her commanding stage presence and her personality. And, and I just thought, at the time, I thought, wow, I've been working with all these really famous people and all these big music industry people. I think if I start working with Sarah Beth, I can really, like, make something of this. Literally what happened is I met her and I just thought to myself, holy crap, this girl is awesome. Um, everything I've done since then has been all about Sarah Beth. Sorry, I know this is a this is a podcast. If Dirk's just joined us. Hello, Dirk. He always finds his way to be, <laughs> he always finds his way to be some sort of centre of attention at some point. Yeah. He doesn't even know it. Dirk, the kid of the family? There's two kids. There's Dirk and Dallas. Dallas is upstairs. Dirk is very calm, so when we do our online shows and stuff like that, Dirk can be around, but Dallas thinks that you're trying to play with him when Glenn's playing the guitar, so that tends to be more of a distraction and a hindrance to the show, so he has to stay upstairs. Dirk yeah. is a bit of a star, so what is the story of when you got Dirk? It was the last day of CMA Fest, so Dirk was the second dog. Uh, we got Dallas the day that I moved into the house, like when I didn't even have my furniture, we got Dallas. Uh, my next door neighbor fostered both of our dogs and Dallas was outside on the driveway and he was going to, to a home to see if he fit in with their other dog. He was three months old. And I, famous last words, if that family doesn't want him, I'll take him. Don't know where that came from. I must not have my coffee yet that morning. So after CMA Fest, a year later, we had Dirk come over for a play date and he never went home. 
Dirk was rescued because he was up for sale in a yard sale. Yeah, they were selling him good for breeding. <laughs> That's what they said. And so he was rescued by a rescue organization and my next door neighbor fostered him and we got him when he was about three months old too. Those are our two babies. So is that the same neighbour who's responsible for the peaches in the freezer? No, that's uh, the other next door neighbour. So the ones that live, that we adopted the dogs from live on the other side. And then the peach trees are on two different neighbours, yeah. Now it might be a few months later, but do you need some recipes for next year for peaches? Because, hey, we might be able to crowdsource that. Yeah, that would be really awesome because peaches go bad pretty quickly. They're one of those things like... My tomatoes from my garden, you know, they were good. You can keep those for a couple of weeks before they really start to go bad. But the peaches, they start to brown really quick if you don't do something with them. So all the recipes, I'll take them. Glenn, you bought your first electric fender, I believe, when you were 15 years of age during the good old milk round. That first electric yeah. guitar when you were 15. I was playing in my dad's band already. I was playing rhythm guitar. He's electric guitar player, his lead guitar player, crazy. He stole the band van and disappeared. And that was on like a Wednesday. And my dad looked at me and he said, Glenn, you're the new lead guitar player on Friday. And I'd never played any country music guitar. I mean, what I, I potted around with it, trying to copy the other guy out of my dad's band, you know, copy some of his licks and stuff. But I hadn't really delved into it because I was working so hard on classical music. So, but anyway, it was a real panic. The next day I went down to South End on Sea to a music store called Honky Tonk Music. I was looking at their guitars and I bought a Fender Telecaster. It's a 1962 reissue made in Japan. Back then, if you bought a guitar from Japan, everybody would be like, oh, you don't want the Japanese ones. You want the American one, but the American ones were much more expensive. So I got this 62 reissue Japan made guitar. Sounded fabulous and is still to this very day the guitar I use all the time it's my number one guitar crazily even though it was a is a, an affordable guitar back then now they're really sought after the Japanese Fender 62 reissue that is a sunburst it's absolutely beautiful I took it home and I had a little Marshall amp and I just worked my butt off trying to learn all the intros and and stuff for my dad's bands yeah, I have a lot of guitars now, but I don't have any guitars better than that one. From your father giving those records to you that he wouldn't play on his radio show, being in a band for which was of a genre that you now perform with and around, he was quite a big influence, and I acknowledge that. On his passing, yeah. you bought another guitar. My dad passed away in 1998, and I was in Nashville, actually. It was my first trip to Nashville, and I was with... The, the girlfriend I split up with, we were in Nashville because we had sent a bunch of my demo songs to a bunch of publishers and record labels. And we literally, we sent hundreds of these things and they were on cassette tape. We got maybe eight replies, but they were incredible replies. BMG Music Publishing, Sony Records, you know, just huge, huge, amazing Reply. So that's why I was in Nashville and I was doing these um, these meetings, just scared to death. My girlfriend was pretending she was my manager and I was talking to my dad on the phone about how the meetings were going and stuff. And then my dad, uh, my dad had a heart attack and he was in the hospital, a minor heart attack, they said. And so uh, 
I went back to the hotel that day and I, uh, and I called to the hospital and asked to speak to my dad. The nurse was like, we've just gone into sleep. It's just a really mild heart attack. He might, he might even be out in the morning. It's really, it's nothing to worry about. Please don't worry, everything's fine and you can speak to him tomorrow. But he passed away that night. So that was very, very heavy, obviously, very heartbreaking. Mm. Uh, and the next day, I was an absolute zombie. I went around all of the music stores in Nashville to try, just, just to play the guitar, not to really buy anything, just to play. Yeah. Um, I was in one store and there was a brand of guitar called Rose, hand-built, custom boutique guitars absolutely beautiful and it was the most wonderful sounding thing I've ever heard and it was so expensive it was like five thousand dollars and I sat there for like an hour playing this thing and this gentleman walked in the store and offered to buy it for me but I I refused to to take it because it was so much money I don't know who that man was I would love to meet him now and now that I'm older I've learned that you know when, when someone offers you a gift like that you don't know where they are in their life and they possibly taken some joy from because they they heard the story of my dad passing from somebody else in the store apparently I mean maybe they they would have felt some joy from buying me the guitar I don't know but I refused that guitar I found another one it was a thousand dollars Asat GNL uh, Asat Z3 it's absolutely wonderful and I bought that guitar on the day on the day my dad died and yeah that guitar means a hell of a lot to me too um, and it was stolen once. Um, <laughs> it was stolen, and uh, and the thieves, along with all my, my other equipment, dumped all the the equipment in a graveyard. They hid it around a graveyard, and and that guitar was there. And after being in a horrible panic about all my equipment being stolen, to find that guitar was just unbelievable. It was it was stuffed behind some gravestones, like wedged between some gravestones and a, and a wall, uh, and it was covered in some. Um, bush leaves that they they torn and tried to cover it up with it's interesting that and i don't think it was about the value that it was like five thousand or whatever i think it was genuinely about that person and what they were trying to offer at that point that stuck with you and like i said at the time i didn't realize at the time i was a particularly stubborn uh, young man but i grew up in the welfare system for many years after my dad lost his job and all he was doing really at that point was the two-hour weekly radio station thing. We were on welfare for a long time, and um, I grew up very stubborn about making my own money, paying my own way, and I, I think I was wrong. Now, now looking back, I think I was wrong where my mindset was at. At some point in my youth, I decided that I wasn't going to take anything from anyone. I was going to make my own money. I was very much that person. So when that gentleman offered to buy me that guitar, I was so used to saying no. And yeah. something in my mind was saying, no, I won't take this like a handout and I won't take a handout. Yeah. All those kind of things triggering in my mind because I, I wasn't mature enough to think to myself, this guy heard about my dad and he just wants to do something for me. And honestly, $5,000 to that gentleman might have been like me giving somebody 20 bucks. If I'd have accepted that guitar, I might have brought that man some some joy. At the same time, there's some of us that money, it isn't about that dollar value. It's about what you can do with it. Thank you for sharing that. It moves us on to what I wanted to ask Sarah Beth about, and that is that of charity. How important is charity in your life and how do you best exude 
charity in your life, Sarah Beth? For anybody, there's different causes that mean a lot to you for various reasons. For me, I'm really drawn to kids. I always raise money through racing, which is, I've raised money, a ton of money for St. Jude. That's something that I've had a big heart for since I was in high school. But I have also teamed up with an organization called Food for the Hungry, a place where you can sponsor children. They have an organization in the UK on our UK tour. We actually had like a special person from Food for the Hungry in the United Kingdom where we would talk about it at all of our shows. We also do a lot of stuff with musicians on call. Obviously right now we're not doing a lot with that because if you don't have to go into a hospital, they're not wanting you to go into a hospital, but... If you're not familiar with Musicians on Call, it's a different type of charity thing because it's musicians going into hospital wards to entertain very, very sick people, usually yeah. a lot of kids. There's, there's um, several different places. We tend to go to Vanderbilt Children's Hospital in Nashville, but you can choose who you go and, and sing for. We usually go and sing for that. But I feel like as far as giving back, you know, it's not always about money. You know, not everyone has a ton of money that's disposable for them. You know, giving your time is just as precious as giving money to things that you believe in. Yeah, it would just be me and Sarah Beth singing to, like I said, really, really sick kids. I mean, a lot of these a lot of these kids aren't even going to make it, you know. Again, you can just bring a little bit of joy to them for a second. You can sing them a, a silly little tune and their eyes light up, you know. Yeah. But we went into one room with this little boy and he was fascinated by my guitar. He loved it. He declared that his dad was the best guitar player in the world. And uh, what was the song he wanted me to play? Was it Bad to the Bone, wasn't it? Uh, Wipeout? Maybe, was it Bad to the Bone? It was one of those, it was one of those old, you know, I guess his dad played, but yeah, it was, it was just, it was amazing how his eyes lit up and then he, and then he told us his dad was the greatest guitar player in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and then he got me to play. I, th- I think it was Wipeout. I don't know. That's a great thing. Musicians on call is something you really, really love. It's hard though. It's so hard for me. I'm a very emotional person. It's very, very hard for me to walk in those rooms and see those sick kids. Yeah, so um, Ryan Seacrest actually has a radio studio in the hospital. And so we like doing that. We think it's going to be a tough day going there for a couple of hours. And we play a few songs on the radio. We always play games with the kids. And that's always a lot of fun. We actually, the last time we were there, we saw one of our fans, her son had come in for like allergies or something. And he happened to be there when we were in the studio, which was crazy. That's a wonderful thing. A a lot of American hospitals, children's hospitals, have wonderful (laughs) programs for the kids. Just, Just amazing. And you're in, you're in a team that make like a crazy amount of money. Yeah, they, we were the top fundraising team for the past three years um, in Nashville for St. Jude. And I actually got to go to the hospital with our team, which was really cool. What is it about running, Sarah Beth? What do you get out of it? Running, I graduated from college and that New Year's Day after I graduated, which was, you know, half a year later, I just decided I want to run a half marathon. I don't know where that came from. I've always hated running my entire life and now I love it. I feel like with running, it's something you can do anywhere. I love it. It's like my me time. I can listen to music or listen to a podcast or listen to whatever or not listen to anything at all and just think about things. It's a good, like, it's good stress relief. You Weren't Meant For Me was released on November the 16th, 2020 out to the radio. That was the day that it hit. 
Yeah, we actually wrote this single. It's kind of a crazy story. We wrote it right here in this room where we're talking to you from. And we wrote that with our friend Beth Keeping. It was me and Glenn and Beth. And Beth, I had never met her before. And she reached out on Facebook. She asked me to be friends on Facebook and then sent me a Facebook message. She's from the UK. And she said, hey, I'm coming to Nashville and I would love to write with you guys if you're available to write. I don't think I ever asked her why, like how she found us, how she like knew to ask us to write, but she did. So we ended up, obviously we wrote that song with her and I honestly don't remember where the idea for the song came from. It came from her. I was really proud of my, um, my favorite part of that song is the line that I threw out and I was very proud of myself. It's a wonderful line. We're made up of pieces from two different puzzles. was the biggest contribution I had to the song that day. And best Glenn, line. Best line in the song, that and is. And Glenn always says that's the best line of the nah, song. So is, yeah. it helps my my little, you know, intimidation <laughs> in songwriting. That's that. And we were really excited about it. We're excited to send it to radio. We love that song, obviously, because we love all the songs that we write. But we really love that one. That recording isn't actually a Paul Wally recording. That's something that we did to try and snag Paul, uh, to try and convince him that he should work with us. And you're saying that this was the song, the current single that we're talking about, You Weren't Meant For Me, is the one that you presented. Paul Wally is one of the biggest country music record producers of all time. He has countless Grammys and every other award. He did all the Dixie Chick stuff. He did all the biggest, like the, the early Lady Antebellum. Who else has he done? Van Perry. Yes, yeah, um, um, Sarah Evans, Martina McBride. Colin Ray, yeah. Big and Rick. The list is really um, long. Just Highway 101, just so many like massive country music acts. Obviously none bigger than the Dixie Chicks or, you know, or stuff like um, Need You Now by Lady Antebellum, which was a worldwide smash. Right. That was Paul in the same studio where we, when we had recorded songs with Paul in that same room as he would record, you know, the Dixie Chicks and Lady Antebellum. It was an amazing experience. But that's who Paul is. He's a massive record producer. And so we were looking for a record producer because I'd been producing everything, but we wanted somebody with a little more clout who could get us in front of big industry people. You Weren't Made For Me was one of the songs on the little projects that we did in a tiny little studio. It was just me and Sarah Beth and our bass player, Vicky, and we brought in a percussionist. Those are the only musicians on it. It's very acoustic heavy. I played, you know, a lot of guitar parts and mandolin. And Honestly, those were never supposed to be songs that we ever released. No. We weren't planning to release them. The only reason we released them was because of COVID, because we didn't have anything else to release. We had to keep the ball rolling, but we weren't able to record new music. We dug deep yeah. and and we released the acoustic, technically they were acoustic demos for Paul Wally, trying to, trying to impress him, which they did, obviously. And, uh, <laughs> that and, works. And so he came on board and they sound great. They sound different to the Paul Wally stuff because Paul Wally stuff is like electric guitars and, and big that demo, like I said, is acoustic. It still sounds very, very full, but there's no electric instruments on that at all. Making Babies, there is a version on your YouTube, but there's also a version recorded by a couple of your fans as well that's only had 52 views, but we'll have more when we post the link in the show notes. I don't know either. Have you seen that? No, but we'll I've not seen it. that. You have to send us that link. It's like a veranda kind of scenario. 
but I want to ask you about making babies and how passionately you are for getting it on Spotify. <laughs> well, here's, here's the thing about Spotify, as you know. Oh, boy. Where do we start? Oh, All right, as you grab know. a cup of coffee and sit All right. back and listen. We are available on Spotify. You can listen to Radio Notes podcast there, but maybe not for much longer. Glenn, the floor is yours. Okay, now Spotify is wonderful for the consumer, an incredible tool, an amazing music discovery tool, but it doesn't pay the artists or the songwriters hardly anything. I mean, if you have a million plays, it's a lot of plays. It took us a year to get to a million plays on Cry Cry, one of our Royal South songs. That gets you around about three thousand American dollars for a million plays, and then with that three thousand American dollars, you have to pay everybody who's got a little slice of the pie anyway. Obviously, it, it costs just to just to record it alone costs more than three thousand dollars. So there's no money to be made in Spotify. So when I was contacted to leave my EP up, it was my solo, my old solo EP that nobody's listening to anymore anyway. You know, it's not getting any plays. Nobody cares about that. They're all listening to Royal Sound. And that's what I want them to be listening. But they wanted $264 for me to keep it up there. I don't know for how long. I Sarah think that Bessel, must have been or, like the five-year anyway, plan. Um, or but anyway, it, it ticks me off anyway. On Spotify, I have not made $264 off of that EP anyway. It's just as, as a matter of of principle i just i just let it go and now if anybody wants it i'll just send it to them they can have it for free because i wasn't making any money out of it anyway everything i touch turns to blue has been a popular tune as well the last song that we had in our little arsenal of songs that were recorded before coronavirus hit so that now we're like okay we really have to get back into the studio but yeah we released that one we love it because it's so funky and different and uh we're just excited to have it out into the world. If you like yeah. to follow some crazy stuff, you can follow obviously all of our social media, which is on our website. And we do a live show almost every Tuesday where we are just about as laid back as we've been today. We sit on the same couch every week. The dog joins us. You never know what's going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> Country's not my genre. I'll be honest with you. It's not a genre I'm okay with but I've very much been enjoying having conversations with country music artists because there's a heart and soul to what you're doing, which I very much appreciate and honoured to speak to people like yourselves in Nashville today. Royal South, thanks very much for joining Radio Notes. Thanks for having us. Royal South, Sarah Beth and Glenn. In 2021, they will release a new single, Perfect on Paper. Online, they're at thisisroyalsouth.com. Thanks very much to Sarah Beth and Glenn of Royal South for being our first feature guests for season three. Next time, we'll be catching up with a member of High Five Minus Four. Hurricane, I was recording that. I was halfway through. And at the time, my wife was heavily pregnant. My baby wasn't due. Our little boy wasn't due till January 7th. Well, we got a phone call on December 19th, who in turn, she told my manager to tell me that her water had broken. So right in the middle of Hurricane, which is, it's, this song means so much more than anything I've ever done before on so many levels, I had to fly back home from New Zealand, two of the flights in which were delayed. So I didn't, I missed the birth by about nine hours. Nathan Foley joins us as a solo artist. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. 
Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. Australia.